Christmas is a time of hope. There's a lot of things that we hope for during Christmas. Some of us, we woke up this morning with the hope for that specific gift wrapped under the tree. Those of us younger might have asked for a specific gift, but I don't think that fully goes away when you're older. It's just the price tag goes up a little bit. And maybe more serious and long-lasting hopes, we hope for time with family. We hope for our families to come around the table, enjoy a meal together, spend time together, laugh, play games, play cards, read the Christmas story, grow closer together. Many of us hope for that. Maybe we look at the world around us and we hope for what the scriptures say, peace on earth. We all hope for something, Christian or otherwise. We all hope for something on Christmas. And with that being said, the bitter realities of life can very quickly rob us of that hope. And perhaps a silly note, we may not gift, get that toy we wanted. But in perhaps a deeper note, maybe that family time that we desire was robbed of us, maybe due to weather. Maybe that family time we desired was robbed from us because, well, there was that big fight a few years ago, and we're not exactly on talking terms. Maybe that family time is robbed of us because Christmas looks different this year. We lost something or somebody over the last year, and it's just not the same. Maybe our hope is robbed from us by the headlines we see, the pain in this world. Maybe, the, maybe it's robbed of us by health conditions. Is this going to be the last Christmas? We all hope for something, and we all have something that tries to rob us of that hope. What are we to do in those times? What are we to do when it seems like so many things around us are trying to take away the hope that Christ offers us, or just general hope that we have of family or loved ones, or etc. Fill in the blank in your own experience. I would like to make a suggestion that the answer to this question is found in the scriptures. And the specific scripture that we're going to be in this morning is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Please turn in your Bibles there right now. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And while you're turning there, allow me to make a suggestion to you. I'm not going to make you question this one long. I'm going to give you an answer here. And we're going to spend this morning looking through this passage and finding out how this passage gives us that answer. And so, the answer to this question that I would like to present to you today is I would make the suggestion that in the darkest of times, God has brought the greatest of hope. In the darkest of times, God has brought the greatest of hope. That sounds encouraging. That sounds comforting. That sounds like something you could wrap yourself around as some sort of spiritual blanket and may keep you going for a little bit. But what does that actually mean? Allow us to turn to Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. 
one of the biggest books, I think the biggest book in the scripture, but perhaps one of those books that we see and it's this monolith of a, of a book in the scriptures and so we many times flip to a, a shorter book to be able to get through it a little bit easier. I would say that that is a fault of our own because Isaiah is a wonderful book full of so many wonderful things. Isaiah is what's known as a prophetic book. It, it recounts the ministry of the prophecies that a man named Isaiah received from God and communicated to the nation of Israel. Now, Israel in this time is not in a good place. There once was a time when Israel was strong, powerful, Obedient to God, successful in campaigns, wealthy, prosperous. But this is not that time. Ever since King David died, and after him, King Solomon died, the nation of Israel has been torn in two, wounded, if you will. The nation is separated into two distinct nations, the northern nation of Israel, the southern nation of Judah. With that separation of peoples has come some sort of a separation from God. The northern nation of Israel has turned its back from the God of the covenants, the God of Moses, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah was struggling to follow as well. And whenever a nation has some sort of catastrophic event, like a couple hundred years civil war, that gains the attention of other nations around it. Enter the Assyrian Empire. Perhaps one of the scariest empires you may have never heard of. Assyria was a nation that started and was to the north of Israel. It had conquered great lands and it had done it with an iron fist and with cruel tactics. Effective militaries, its own version of modern standardized warfare. And everywhere they went, they destroyed people in their path. Separated families out. Murdered men, women, children, and anything else they could get their hands on in the name of making their empire powerful. Power drives us crazy very quickly. And so Israel is sitting here, separated off from the southern nation of Judah, looking to the north of it and, and finding this massive nation of Assyria slowly making its way to their doorstep. And they are finding themselves in a place that, forgive the, the triteness that this may be, but their hope is being robbed of them. But on an existential level, their nation is facing annihilation. That's a big way to take your hope from you. When you fear for your life, your very existence, your family, what you've known of all of your life, that's scary. And what makes it worse is, well, Isaiah isn't really making the situation any better or making them feel any better. And in, in Isaiah chapter 8, I don't know what your Bible says, but my Bible says has the, the heading of the coming Assyrian invasion. Now, that's not scripture, but it's a way to help us understand that section of scripture. Chapter 8, Isaiah spends the whole chapter explaining about how Assyria is going to invade Israel. All of their worst fears are going to come true. Oh, and it's a result of judgment because they have wandered far from God. Isaiah, you're not making the situation any better, man. Try to be a little more encouraging. 
Isaiah is receiving these, not just as a guy who's sitting on the side with, a, with almost like one of those picket sign fences on his chest and, and screaming that the end is nigh. He's not just some crazy person, but he's receiving word from God. God is talking to him specifically and telling him to communicate this to Israel in hopes that they may turn back to him. Chapter 8, coming Assyrian invasion. Chapter 9, verses 8 onward, you're also going to be have judgment. You're going to be destroyed. You're going to feel the effects of this. This is not a very fun part of the Bible to read. It's not fun. It doesn't feel good. But in chapter 9, 1 through 7, God gives a glimmer of hope. And that is the place that we're going to focus on this morning. Allow me to read to you the passage as a whole and then spend time separating out, breaking it down into smaller chunks to help us understand it better. Please read with me in its entirety. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Please read the scriptures with me. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, will do this. That's our text for this morning. And if you've been around church at some point in your life, or if you've been in a Christmas church service, you may have heard the latter half of that passage. The, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulders, and he shall be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. You might have heard that part before. I'm asking us, what does the part before that mean? You've heard that part before. I want to look at what's happening before that, because we got some weird things going on in the first part of it. It starts to sound like, you know, when you're reading the Bible and someone's reading it and you don't fully understand what's happening, so it kind of glosses over in your mind. Is that just me, or does that happen to anybody else? might just be me. That's okay. But we're going to start in verses 1 and 2. We're going to break this part down, and then we'll carry on after that. Read with me again verses 1 and 2. I'll stop at random points. But there will be no gloom. For her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. 
But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Pause. There's two words in there that you may not know very well. Zebulun and Naphtali. For those of us that may know a little bit about our scriptures, they, that Zebulun and Naphtali are two brothers that are sons of Jacob way back in the book of Genesis. And they are two of the major tribes that existed in the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel consisted of 12 tribes after the Civil War. Judah and Simeon, I think it was, went down to the south. And the majority rest of them went up to the north and started Israel. And Zebulun and Naphtali are a part of that. You didn't realize that you were getting a crash course in biblical geography this morning. That's my second gift for you. But what's so special about Zebulun and Naphtali? There's arrows pointing up there, and this is the allotment, the land that was given to each of the tribes. What's so special about Zebulun and Naphtali? They're small places to the north. They're they're right up around the Sea of Galilee, past the Jordan River. What's going on up there? Well, we have to remember our context. Who's at the north? Who's, who's, Who's to the north of the nation of Israel? The Assyrian Empire. If they want to conquer Israel, they have to uniquely go through Naphtali and Zebulun. You may say, well, why can't they go around it? The answer being money. There is a massive trade route that goes through the land of Zebulun and Naphtali that makes its way south to the city of Samaria, the capital of Israel. If any invading army or anybody that wants to make any money wants to be able to trade, which trade and money is always, has always been important for humans, money is very important for many humans, if you want to make money, you have to use that trade route. On another sense, if you want to conquer this land, you have to go down that road. I think of it this way. If there is an invading army in Battle Creek, Michigan, my first question is, why are they there? But the second question is that if they want to go and take out the city of Chicago, they have to, con- they have to control I-94. It's a highway that goes, connects this part of Michigan over to Chicago. You have to conquer that road or else it's going to be a lot harder to do that. In the same way, you would have to conquer the land of Naphtali and the land of Zebulun to make it into Israel. With that being said, these two areas of land have seen incredible amounts of warfare, have seen armies from their own nation or armies from other nations traveling through, battling in this land. This area is known as one of the lands of great blood, Archaeologists, Christians, and otherwise will affirm this. It's a very dangerous place to live. It's a place where people have lost things. It's a place that has a great darkness over it. And with that, that helps us understand that in the former time, verse 1, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. What God is doing as he's speaking to Isaiah, and what Isaiah is communicating to the nation of Israel, is that this is a very dark place to live. A dark place physically, because of wars and trade routes and corruption and all that sort of good stuff. Not good stuff. 
and also in a way very spiritually. Because with a lot of trade, through here comes a lot of people that do not believe in God that live here. And if we fast forward from the time of Isaiah, he was around in roughly the 700s B.C. If we fast forward 700 years to the time of Jesus, this is also the land of Galilee. And a majority of people that were there were Gentiles, not Jewish people, people that didn't believe in Yahweh, didn't believe in the God of Moses, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and etc., so what, what God is doing is he's using a physical reality to communicate a greater spiritual need. That just as there is darkness in this place from the bitter realities of life, so also is there a greater darkness in this place that is a spiritual darkness of people being separated from God. And it is those people that a light will shine on. The best part about that is that that prophecy has already been fulfilled. In the New Testament, Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, it says at that time that this prophecy is fulfilled. How? By Jesus beginning his ministry there. When Jesus began his ministry there, you, don't, you can turn there if you want, Matthew chapter 4, 13 through 16, it says Jesus began his ministry there, began teaching and healing, casting out demons, all that sort of stuff, to fulfill what has been spoken. And it quotes verses 1 and 2. Matthew quotes his Old Testament, good for him. But what this is trying to show is that this is a place where people are hopeless, maybe, not in, a, maybe in a physical level, but also greater in a spiritual level. This is a place of darkness, of sin, of people who are separate from God. And that is the place that Jesus picks to minister to in his ministry. A great light has shown. A great light has shown. This first part is fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus, who eventually led a perfect life after being born several years later, leading a perfect life, doing miracles and teachings, and eventually dying on the cross to pay for my sins and for yours. The application of these first two verses is the gospel itself, the good news that Jesus came to this earth. We celebrate today. Jesus came to this earth, fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death for us imperfect people. Died for you, died for me. So that we would have a great light in our lives, that light being Christ. I don't know where you and God are at. I don't know if you've come here and you may feel bitter towards God at this point due to events in life. I don't know what's going on with you. I don't know if you're on talking terms with him or not, but I know that this God has, has come to this earth to be able to shine a light in your lives. All he asks in return is recognition and obedience and submission to him. All I ask. It's a big ask. It's giving us our lives to God who died for us. In that way, has God in the darkest of times, brought the greatest of hope. He has brought hope for the hopeless, the hopeless being those who do not believe in God. If you are far from God this morning and you manage to make it here in person or online, I believe that a reason God brought you here is to hear the fact that he loves you, that he cares about you, and he wants to have a relationship with you.
It's a big ask, giving your life to him. But in, only in that way could the rest of this passage be true in our lives as well. And we'll explain that as we go. But my encouragement for you, believe in the name of Jesus to pay for your sins. Maybe some of you here know Jesus. You've believed in Jesus. You say, yes, I believe in Jesus, but there's still all these issues in my life. There's still these hopeless happenings in my life. There's, it's still pretty rotten for X, Y, or Z. Well, let's jump to the next part of this passage, verses 3 through 5. Please read with me. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, has been broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. We have to remember that this part of Scripture was, wasn't, it was, it was written to a specific group of people. We mentioned earlier the Assyrian army encroaching in. We mentioned earlier the nation of Israel in a very vulnerable position. This is speaking directly to them in their needs. Notice what it says. You have multiplied the nation. Not at this time in history. Israel is struggling. As with joy at the harvest, Israel was an agricultural nation. For those of us that aren't farmers, we may not understand the joy of the harvest, or at least the joy of the harvest being done. And even then, we may not understand what the joy of the harvest was like 2,000 years ago, where if you didn't have a harvest, you didn't have food. You couldn't eat the joy of the harvest wasn't just getting a hard work's day done. It was eating food on the table. We don't understand that, many of us. God is speaking to the people in this text. They are glad when they divide the spoil. The yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor has been broken. Not many of us know what that's like. To have the rod of an oppressor over us. To fear of something more powerful, somebody more powerful, a separate nation coming and destroying our way of existence. Holding us hostage or prisoner or enslaved in some way or another. Many of us don't know what that's like. God is speaking to the people in this passage. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Many of us don't know, don't know the fear of an existential war. We don't know what it's like to say, I'm, my, my place of living may not exist tomorrow. God is speaking to the people in this passage. Every fear that they have Every hurt that they suffer, God is speaking directly to their greatest needs. He's saying, you're fearing other nations. The battle tumult, the, the gear of war will be burned as fuel for a fire. You're fearing eating tomorrow. You have increased its joy as with joy as the harvest. 
God is speaking directly to the people here and addressing the things that they are fearing. What are you fearing today? What is it that you are fearing? I would make the suggestion that just as God provided hope for the hopeless, he also provides hope for those in fear. That fear being, who knows? For these people, it was existential existence, food on the table, a nation that was just nearly destroyed. What's your fear today? What's your fear this holiday season? What's your fear after the holiday season? I think God is showing us that just as he was willing to address the fears then, so also does he care for us and the fears that we have today. Did he address them in the best ways that they may have desired? Well, no. If you know the end of the story, Assyria does invade Israel and destroys the nation. Again, not a very fun part of the Bible to read. Do we know that each of them got the right harvest? We don't. But what we know is that God in the fullness of time gives us hope according to his plan, according to his timing, not according to our own. We all have our own timing. We all have our own vision of the future. We all think we know best. And God is here saying, trust in me. I know your fears. I know your hurts. I'm hurting with you. And I will work through it. Not in your timing. Not in the best way that you may think. Maybe, but maybe not. But I know your fears, and I am with you. There is a present support and love and comfort from that, that we can know that God is working out all things for his glory. For his glory. God provides hope for those in fear. If you are in fear, Know that just as God has done it in the past, he hasn't changed. He will do it in the future. Coming back to the final section of the passage, verses 6 and 7. This is the part that many of us know. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. God provided a hope for the hopeless. God provided a hope for those in fear. I would make the suggestion that this part is God providing hope for the future. If you notice in this passage, it says there's a lot of future in this part of the passage. It is born. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called. There's a lot of future tense. And if we were to notice, for those of you grammar crazies out there, notice that for the the previous part of the passage, it was speaking as if it had already happened. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad. For the yoke of his burden, the staff, the rod, you have broken. 
It's the first part is speaking in the present, the, the perfect tense, the, 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 the here and the now. Verses 6 and 7 speak of a shall, of a future tense. You have to be careful with prophecy. Sometimes it says it in the present, but this hasn't happened yet. Prophecy is weird. There's a reason some of us, many of us, are afraid of reading this part of, that, of Scripture. It's hard. It requires prayer and help from the Spirit to help us understand it. But verses 6 and 7 are pointing forward. And all of the, the, the hope for the hopeless, the hope for those in fear, culminates in verse 6. To us a child is born. The focus of the fulfillments of these promises rests on this child. This child and this son. And it says that the government shall be upon his shoulders. He will have a government. He will rule. How will he rule? Well, he has titles given for him. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, boom, on the throne of David. Anytime you see in the prophecies a mention of the throne of David, it's a pointing forward to the Messiah. If we look back to the Davidic covenant in the book of 2 Samuel. So what? God is doing here is he's saying all of that hope, all of the, 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 the ability for me to care for you is going to come through this son. And whatever fear you may have, whatever conflict you may have, whatever's trying to rob you of your hope, this son will provide you with the necessary hope, will provide you with a way through, will provide you with a love, care, and support and a challenge to work through the greatest things that rob us of our greatest hopes. Let's appeal perhaps to some of the points earlier. Are you in fear of a family issue this year, like perhaps there has been in years past, to go to the wonderful counselor to give you wisdom and guidance on how to love and care for your family well? Do you maybe look at the headlines and see the world around us and recognize the sin in this world and say, I don't know what's going to happen. Look to the Prince of Peace who promises a point with an increase of peace. There will be no end. Are you maybe one of those glass half empty people and say, come on, this doesn't sound quite right. There's got to be an end here. Look to the everlasting Father who promises an eternal peace. An eternal peace with fairness, justice, and righteousness. This is a ruler that will rule fairly. No corruption in this kingdom. Maybe your fear is a health concern or the loss of, of somebody. Go to the mighty God who holds time life and death in his hand. Who though we may feel the effects of, of getting older, who though we may notice that this year Christmas is different because we're missing someone from last year, where we wonder if this will be our last Christmas, there is a mighty God on our side. A mighty God who meets us and has the power 
to heal and to provide and to support forever. Does that mean that's happening in our lifetime? Only in God's hands, only in God's timing. This isn't one of those believe in God and life is going to be peachy. But what this is, is that there is a future promise of a future king, that though life is hard now, God will provide, just as he's done in the past. So will he in the future. The future is a scary place. There's nothing we can control about the future. There's nothing we can manage, we can prepare, we can, we can look to human wisdom to give us guidance as we look forward. But there's nothing we can do. Nothing we can do to control events to the point that God can. Christian or otherwise, there's nothing we can do. That's why we need a hope for the future. And that hope rests in this child that is born, this son that is given, Christ the Lord. In wrapping up this morning, there's lots that will rob us of our hope. There's lots, and perhaps stresses of the holiday season can amplify that a little bit. Travel, family, making sure food is on the table. But what God is here showing you and me today is that in the darkest of times, God has brought the greatest of hope. Anything that tries to rob us of our hope is inferior to the power and hope that God provides us with an eternal life through belief in his son, Jesus, who came to this earth, brought light into a dark world, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death for you and me as imperfect sinners. It is a hope offered to you. The question is, are you going to take it?